welcome to the Yes Indeed podcast created by Mark Shepherd and run by me, Thomas Manuel. This is a podcast where I speak to people in and around the wonderful hobby of indie role playing games. This week we're talking to game designer and reviewer Ela Edelman. But before we get to that, a shout out to my two newest patrons over at Patreon, David Huddleston Jr. and Kellen. I'm very grateful for your support in keeping this podcast and the indie RPG newsletter going. Like Jack Black in the groundbreaking documentary, Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, I too am on a valiant quest to pay rent and you can help by going over to patreon.com slash IndieRPG and pledging your support. And with that quixotic plug out of the way, let's get to the interview. And I'm sitting down with Leila Edelman. Leila goes by the handle Panda Tiest in RPG spaces. That might be how you know her. She's an RPG designer, writer, and a serial thread creator on the app formerly known as Twitter. She's one of the co-designers of the Illuminated World system for Critical Role's Darrington Press. This is the system which powers Candela Obscura and potentially other unannounced projects that we cannot discuss. She was an Ennis judge uh, for two years. She blogs over at Bonebox Chant at WordPress.com, which includes a major series where she collated and analyzed statistics around Kickstarter's zine quest for a couple of years, and a series of interviews with TTRPG editors, which I found quite interesting. I know her primarily for her various threads on, on Twitter, where she revealed herself to be a very thoughtful, insightful, and generous reviewer. I'm very excited to chat with her. Hello, Leila. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. So yeah, I'm really glad to talk to you because I actually don't know a lot about your journey as a as a player of RPGs, as a, as a designer. So my first question, very obviously, how did you get started with games? Yeah, I found my brother's second edition D&D stuff and Palladium Robotech back in the day, which I was mostly interested in the art back then. And then I, I got really interested in running games when third edition D&D came out, stuck with that for a while, stuck with Pathfinder, and then kind of burned out and quit RPGs for a while. And then when I moved to where I'm at now in Pittsburgh, I found a local game shop that had a bunch of indie stuff. I got I got sort of interested again in RPGs. I looked around online and I, I found the OSR, which I think Patrick Stewart probably was the one that really sealed the deal for me for people making all these weird and interesting settings and and sort of a, a lighter approach to some of the stuff I loved. And then, yeah, I just sort of fell back in love and started seeing what was new and what I'd missed, which was a lot. <laughs> Still catching up. And yeah, at some point, I started paying attention to what was happening in the broader scene. I think I ran for the Ennies the first time in 2017, didn't make it. I was frustrated. I can't remember what the product is at this point, but there was something that, that had gotten nominated as, as best product. And I bought it and it was just, it was just poorly made. It was, it was cheap. It was, you know, I know how hard it is being any stretch now. So no, no criticism on them. Who knows what happened behind the scenes, but it got me ticked about products. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in product design. And yeah, once I, once I got in in 2018 and 2019, I really, I really got obsessed with sort of bettering my own understanding so I could be a better judge. I was reading all these things and I couldn't talk to anybody but four other people. So I sort of started posting more on Twitter about 
things that weren't submitted. And then, yeah, it was just at that point, I was, I was all the way in. I, I, I fell in love. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of the short, the short version. I actually had a very similar entry into indie games. I was playing D and D and then was looking online for some help with how to run this game. And I found the OSR and I found Patrick Stewart's work and yeah, it was just so appealing, so weird. I remain a huge fan of Veins of the Earth. And then after that, I kind of moved on to story games and stuff like that. It was clearly like more aligned with how I want to play. I know you play trad games, you play OSR, you play a lot of like story games, stuff like that. How do you describe your preferred play style? I mean, it depends whether I'm running or playing, and, and it really depends who the group is. I'm very comfortable in any of the three, as long as the sort of genre matches my taste. I tend to prefer more trad styles of horror games, just because I think there's a lot more support historically. There's a lot more prudent stuff, a lot more, a lot more advice. Indie stuff tends to be more where I play these days, just because of the groups I run with. And OSR stuff's probably the most comfortable thing that I run, although of the group of games I'm running soon, it's all it's all indie or trendy stuff, so God knows. It's just sort of what hits my what hits my fancy. But I think I think if I had to say it would be Trad Horror OSR adventure for running and then I don't know, some kind of indie nonsense for playing. But but it really it really could be anything. And when you became an Innies judge for the first time, was that your first exposure to the breadth of indie games because you had to read all of these various games and have opinions and stuff like that in one year? Or did you or did you already have a bunch of experience with, with indie games before that? I had some indie stuff. Like at my local store they had sort of a weird a weird situation. Phantom the Attic, if anybody's a Pittsburgh visitor or or native. You know, they had Dogs in the Vineyard, they had Shabal Hiri Roach and Fiasco and a bunch of weird stuff. Dread, I think. So so I wasn't I wasn't unaware of indie stuff, but it certainly wasn't my my sort of expertise. When I got the Ennies judge position, I really decided to play more and get better. So at that point, I'm I'm not really a I'm not a member anymore. I haven't been for a few years now, but I joined the Gauntlet to play a bunch more indie games because that tends to be more popular in there or was at the time. I tried to run more stuff. The one I found most useful to me for sort of getting better at other stuff was running horror. Just because and that was more trad stuff, but it was it was beneficial to 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 running indie things for me too, just because it has a different focus. Or or certain things that matter in horror are beneficial to non-horror, but are necessary in horror. So like you can't focus on sight. You have to focus on things like smell and hearing and taste. So you need to get better at, at GMing, defaulting to different sensory experiences. You need to worry a lot more about pacing and tension and tone. If you push too hard on bleak, it turns into comedy. If you if you spend too much time letting letting things just sort of go and not having any control, then then players will bounce around and and sometimes very little will happen particularly newer players if you have too tight a rein then then nothing really matters so it forces you to really get better at pacing and tone in a really interesting way which i found useful everywhere else in in my in my gaming experiences so yeah i sort of chose to to get better at, at 
those two things. And that sort of led into everything else I was playing and running. And when you say trad horror, is there a specific game you're talking about? Do you have a favorite trad horror game? I don't know that I have a specific one. I mean, Call of Cthulhu is the classic just because it has the most support. I'm a little weird and, and it's sort of, it heavily influences what I, what I write about or how I write in that I'm bad at creating things off the top of my head. I have trouble writing in a blank slate. I have trouble jamming in a blank slate. I am terrible at sort of this improv style of, of doing things. So I need support. That's one of the reasons why the OSR sort of helped me initially or attracted me initially because they had a lot of GM tools and generative tools and, and a focus on, on usability in a very particular way that, that was beneficial to me. And so when I'm running a thing, I almost always, pretty uniquely among my friends, I almost always run pre, pre-created content, modules, ventures, things like that, so that I can focus on the things that I... I can excel at and and sort of have the support where I need it. Because of that, I kind of joke that a lot of people run things like a like a writer or a director, and I run things like an editor. I'm I'm constantly picking and choosing and cutting and 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 highlighting and and I feel like I'm sort of yeah, it's it's I'm dancing with with the content that's been provided rather than creating my own, except where it really fails. And so yeah, Call of Cthulhu probably is the default just because it has the most pre-written adventures and the most support and the most content already sort of sitting around. That's less a playstyle preference or any kind of love of the system, and it's more just like a resource accessibility reason, but I probably still have to go with that. Do you have a favorite Call of Cthulhu module or something like that that comes to mind, either for its usability or just for the ideas that you drew from it? I think Massive Neralathotep is probably still my like thing that I point people towards, just because it has an understanding of certain parts of how to design sandboxes that I don't think anything else has done quite as well. It has this interesting technique where when you when you get to the edges, it sort of redirects you in like like curved walls so that when you you can push outside of it and you can break it if you want, but because it always has so many options redirecting you back into the middle. It's for, for anybody who's never read it or played it, it's, it's sort of five international linked sandboxes. And there's some problems that even with the updated edition, it's still based on stuff written pre-safety readers and all that stuff. So, you know, there's, there's still some stuff in there that might raise your eyebrows. But for just like design of adventures and understanding how to really keep things going, it has some very cool techniques, narrative techniques rather than mechanical. Like it doesn't, it doesn't tell you you must go back to the adventure, but it it always provides incentives and sometimes it provides punishments in ways that make sense in the game. Cultists will track you down. They're not they're not sort of just sitting around waiting for you to do things. Things sort of move in the background. So yeah, I think I think as far as like things that I'd point out, that's that still probably stands stands as unique. Is there anything other than the cultist thing? I mean I which is which is great. I really like it when an adventure has that kind of pressure on on players. I think that's very cool. Is there anything else about masks of Nyarlathep? Is that I mean that's like mouthful. I've never actually had to pronounce that name. Is there anything else about the adventures module design that you find appealing? When you see another adventure doing it, you're like, oh, this is good. I'm glad. I'm glad they're doing this. I think it uses a lot of different tricks that are kind of interesting in retrospect. 
So you start out in New York. Uh, in the new one, you start out in Peru. It's sort of like a pre-adventure adventure, but really the, the the core adventure starts in New York. And then it lets you go to a bunch of different places. It gives you clues to to all of the other places. But despite that, because of both the travel times, the closeness, and the type of clues, if you look online, the majority of groups still go to the go to London second. And it doesn't require the players to. It gives them the option. It's just the way it's designed and put together, it still funnels people in in a similar direction. So it's sort of an interesting understanding of player choice and incentives that I that I always find interesting from like a designer perspective. It has a ton of stuff going on. There's a ton of clues in any given time. For me, I really like, uh, and this is sort of more more common in horror games and very common in Call of Cthulhu, there's a lot of props available and handouts, which I, I never really, I always like theater of the mind and, and freeform, but it's kind of fascinating. When I sat down, I handed somebody this, this I think it was like a telegraph in Peru, and my friend spoke Spanish. I didn't, and all the, all the information on there was, was linguistically and, and chronologically correct. So, so he was like, oh yeah, this is definitely like a telegraph written in Spanish from you know, the, the 20s or whatever. So I was like, oh, that's really, that's just an amount of detail spent on like props and things that I just, yeah. It's very cool to see. And it's very cool to see how people and, and players connect. So interesting. Is there something that you found in modern OSR adventures, modern mod- module design that masks just uh, does not do at all? Oh, lots of things. Finding finding information is miserable. This is this is sort of my you're you're talking about my Twitter threads. The thing that I probably talk about the most or obsessed over the most in a way that other people don't is books as products and and not just as games if you just talk about the campaign and masks is is brilliant it's got some problems but despite all that it's epic it's huge it's it's sprawling it's got all sorts of cool things to do but if you look at it as like a gm trying to run it it's paragraphs and paragraphs and yeah they bold a couple names here and there but like if i want to remember who this person is like Good luck flipping six pages, like scrambling to find something. And of course, because it's a pre-written adventure, if you mess something up and then you need to just reference something later, you've broken a thing that may be like critically important in like 20 pages that like you can't remember like two like 600 page books or whatever. Forget about it. So yeah, the information design is, I'm not going to go so far as say atrocious, but it's not, it's not great. I mean, it's not just Mask. That's like trad games in general and even a lot of trendy games. But yeah, I would, I would definitely prefer keywords and just highlighted motives and network maps. And I don't know, there's tons of. Yeah, definitely. Like all the prep that you have to do to make the game playable. It would be cool if they did that for you. It's homework, right? This is this is the this is the infuriating thing is people say we're giving you all this this free content. It's like, no, you're giving me a wall to climb. Like I have to read your like fifteen paragraphs of of like fan fiction. Not that there's anything wrong with fan fiction, but like your fifteen paragraphs of like poorly written like setting lore and like look for keywords to turn into some sort of like actual usable material. <laughs> just because we're talking about this and you mentioned it already this idea that you're not good with the blank page could you talk a little bit about that because i think i've heard you talk somewhere about how 
you find writing on Twitter so much easier than writing on a blog. And I think there might be something interesting there. I find Twitter to be more like speech. Like it, you you don't have time to worry. You don't have time to edit other than that first that first post. And then once you go, you're 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 on your road. Like you you can wait 20 minutes between like tweet four and tweet five, or I guess, you know, rip Twitter, blue sky, a mastodon. But like you can you can like wait, but like the longer you wait, the the weirder it is. You just kind of have to go. And it forces me to get stuff out there. Yeah, I, I can't really do that with a blog. I, I very occasionally do things, but I think I think my last update's like a year and a half. It's not it's not great. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. But um yeah, posting posting on on microblogging sites or whatever you want to call them, I find just helps me get the idea out there and not worry about like constantly did I write it correctly? Did I do I need to edit this? Do I should I have set this right? And like occasionally, not that many people, a few people caught it, not too many caught it. Occasionally I would delete and restart if I was like two posts in and like I'd messed up the framing. It's not about the language I used, but it was about sort of like the starting point to get to where I wanted to go. So occasionally I would delete things, but but most of the time if I if I start, I could I could go from start to finish. Whether it's like, you know, five tweets or thirty or whatever <laughs> nonsense I was in the mood for on that. <laughs> So how would you describe what you were trying to do with those reviews? Actually, some of them were not reviews. They were sort of read-alongs. I think you you were picking up a book for the first time and you were going through it and you were just commenting on it as you went through it. And it was really really interesting reading. But yeah, what was your agenda or goal uh, with that kind of writing? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of different types of threads. Sometimes, Sometimes it would be first looks, just because I find... There's things you catch the first time around that you don't catch the second or third or once you've played a game, right? Like if if you're reviewing a thing, it's tough to talk about what's good or bad. There's there's clearly some things that are good and there's clearly some things that are bad, but there's a lot of things that are in the middle or people love despite being mechanically bad or people hate despite being mechanically elegant. And a lot of that comes down to, I think, taste, but also to, to friction. How easy or hard is it to do the thing I want to do? And sometimes you like the thing a game is doing so much that you don't care that it's done poorly, right? Like, I played D&D for 20 years. Third edition is not to my taste. It was, it was more when I was younger. I had sort of an obsessive personality. You could go really deep on the rules. But the pretty as I got older, I kept playing it because... It got me a cool epic game that I could run 20 sessions or 30 sessions and run a campaign and have a big epic event and feel like I was, you know, playing through one of these thousand page books from fantasy books from the 90s, right? Like it, it did the thing I wanted despite the friction. But today there's so many options. You know, the, the question for me is, does this let me do it easily or, or does it make me work to get the thing I want? And sometimes friction is important. You want to slow down certain decisions, right? Friction's not inherently bad. It's it's just you know part of the experience. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you want it to slow down. Sometimes it's bad. It's, it's it's doing things you don't want to do, and you don't always know where it's a choice of the designer or not. But you can read what their intended aims are and see how much that matches what it's actually doing, and and try and judge that way. But that first time you read through, I think you you catch a lot more of that. You catch situations where the book's written poorly or it 
doesn't know how to build a foundation. So you're flipping pages to try and figure out what it's referencing. Or maybe it's, it, I, I talk about forward signaling. It's, it's talking about a thing that's not going to talk about for 100 pages, but not in a way that's beneficial. It's just like, and we're going to get to this eventually. And we'll tell you about this rule. We promise, but not right now. It's like, well, then why did you mention this? That type of stuff really shows up the first time. Once you've played a couple of games, like your experience of the game begins to replace your experience of reading it. It's it's like if you see people play Monopoly a hundred times and you ask them if like, what is it, free parking gives you money back or things like that. Like people people misremember what is house ruling, what are rulings people teach you, what you've naturally fixed because the game wasn't doing it for you. You you don't necessarily know what is if you're a player what the GM is is interjecting the thing. When you're a GM, maybe your players are just really, really good at working around a thing. There's a game that I love, Wise Women. I will, I will preach it to the sky, but I recognize it's better for more experienced players because the character creation has a big lift on the players on, on what they have to bring to the table to make it work, which isn't bad. It's just a thing that if you're not looking for it and you only play with really good improv people or, or really creative players from the get-go, like you won't necessarily think about when you're recommending it to maybe a new player. It doesn't make the game bad or good. It's just a thing that needs to be understood about the game if you're gonna think about playing it or running it. And so so first looks really, really I think benefit that and teach you a lot about how the creator thinks about it or certainly how they they want to present it. Reviews I found to be more beneficial just, you know, to highlight the really cool stuff. If I found the game mechanically interesting, very rarely, I, I try to keep things positive because there's so many products out there and, and why not keep it positive and only highlight the good and not worry. But I occasionally talk about bad stuff if I thought it was a good teaching opportunity. I know I had a lot of threads about adventure design or about thinking about certain types of GM styles. It was kind of just sort of conversation starters for the things that I was experiencing in my games or reading. I'm sort of an obsessive reader. I spent way too much money on Kickstarter the last few years. And yeah, I just, I really wanted to to maintain these conversations. And I think I was really lucky, whether because at that point I was presenting as a cis white dude or because I have a really, had a really effective block list or just because I had a small enough following. I was really lucky that people really a small number of people, but people really responded to threads sort of sincerely. Not that I had no bad experiences, but but I was I was very lucky to have enough good experiences to to sort of get me over the initial hurdle of is this something I want to spend my time doing? Okay. As someone who also writes about games, I think one of the big challenges is kind of articulating what your goal is in terms of in terms of why you're saying something is good or bad or, or rather why you're talking about something in a, in a, in a positive way or why you're criticizing something, right? I've noticed that you actually, when you talk about games, you're often talking about the, about the games as a product. You're talking about standard specifications, qualities that are, that a product which desires to be commercially successful should aspire or adhere to. So I, you know, how, when you are writing about these games or thinking about these games, how important is this distinction between commercial products versus something that is just artistic self-expression? I think it depends who your audience is. For me, I had a weird 
situation where I wasn't like some review sites like Doomsday or Cannibal Halfling or something where I would guess, I don't know this for sure, but I would guess the majority of readers are themselves consumers or players or GMs. I can tell you because I knew who my followers were and who was commenting, the vast majority of people who followed me were designers or in the design space in some way, whether whether as full-time professionals or as as part-time. And that is that does cause some tension because what is good for a designer is not always good for a consumer. I think we sort of assume they're one-to-one, but they're not. The fact of the matter is as a consumer, when I go to spend my money on a game, how many games came out this year? Is it 300? Is it 500? Is it 700? You go on itch, is it a thousand? How do I choose what's good or bad or forget that forget, forget quality at all. Forget presentation. How do I choose something that matches my taste? There's just so much out there. And so, I mean, some of, some of what I think about is just how to highlight the stuff that I think is worth highlighting because how many voices of taste are there out there? Not, not a lot. It's, it's tough. Beyond that, I think because my, my audience had a lot of designers, I wanted to talk about the things that I think a lot of designers don't have the time to think about, but, but they need to, because if you're an independent designer, you don't necessarily have, you know, a lot of money to throw at editors, at, at graphic designers, at layout people, at, at these type of things. And if this is your first or second book, you may not have a ton of experience. Maybe you do. I remember Cecil Howe talking about how he learned all his graphic design stuff from cookbooks. Awesome, right? Like, take take the experiences you have and take the take the background that you're familiar with and and use it and run with it. But but I think a lot of people don't think about those things, or they think if I make a really cool mechanic, this game will be successful or people will love this, but if I have trouble getting to the point where I know how to implement that at the table, I may never try it to fall in love with it. I may never get there. I may never get over the hurdle of reading the book, never get over the hurdle of flipping through it at a store if it's you know printed and sold through any sort of distribution like IPR or whatever. And it's hard. It's hard to use some of these books. I care because as much as it looks like it's easy and I talk about it all the time, it's a struggle for me. I've been out of the game for like six or seven months and coming back to reading RPG books is tough. It's tough. And I recognize I, I'm particularly sensitive to certain types of friction in the reading experience. And I see when there's missing information more than other people wait for it to appear. They'll keep reading. They'll be like, that's, that's weird, but I'm going to keep going. Me, I stop. I pause. I, I take a second. I had a very small number of videos when I did video first reads. And you would see me, you would see me just like, but let me think about this for a second. Like it, it, it hits me. And so I care because it, it impacts me personally. And I have the benefit of sort of learning to, to read, which, which is a weird thing to say, because of course, everybody who, who reads RPG books knows how to read. But I think, I think there's ways to more effectively do pattern recognition and look for differences if I'm reading yet another PBTA game. How is this PBTA game different from all other PBTA games? Like what is what is the thing that stands out or is different or sets my like design brain going, right? Like what what's the thing that stands out? And you can get better at that. And it's it's sort of there's this constant debate that comes up in in around review circles of do you have to play the game to be able to review it? 
And for certain things, yes. For certain things, no. But what I found for reading a ton, and I'm sure, I'm sure the you doing the indie game newsletter and all the rest like have, have had this. When I started reading a ton of indie games and OSR games in like 2017 or whatever, I would read a game and I would have an expectation of what play would look like. And then what play actually looked like would be wildly swingy. I have no idea. I or I had no idea. Today, when I read a game, I can tell you with very accurate like specificity, this will either be this experience, this will be that experience, or I know for a fact I must play this to know what the experience will be like. And I know for sure, and I'm very rarely wrong these days. And it's not because like I have some like magic talent, like I've just read a ton of games now. I've read a couple thousand games over the last few years, and I've played a ton. And if I see yet another PBTA game, and it's got a bunch of stat swapping and plus threes, I don't need to play it to tell you this won't be fun because PBTA is mostly fun in the seven to nine range. Like I know that because I see the mechanic. I know how it is impacted, and you can add all the flavor you want. But if I'm not playing with the with the with the middle range, like I just know it's not going to work the way I want it to. But if I see a new design, I can say, aha, I have no experience with this. I must see this. I can make some guesses, but like, it's not going to be as accurate. That's a super interesting answer. Thank you so much. I definitely am not dead yet. This year, I read a bunch of games and decided to play them. And then I found while I was running them that, oh shit, I have not. <laughs> I have not understood what it takes to run this game. I should have prepped way more than I have. So yeah, my sense of judgment is not there quite yet. So so it's really cool. It's really cool to hear that you're able to do that. I also really liked what you said about being sensitive to text's problems and, and communicating that as a kind of uh, service to designers who, you know, don't have the headspace to think about it right now because, you know, you... You've, you've gone away and you've designed a game, oh, that which is pretty much impossible, good for you, and now you have to sit down and, and write a text, which is just this whole other epic journey that you have to undertake. So I think uh, it would be super useful for new designers if we could identify, articulate some of these regular pet peeves that kind of keep coming up. I think there's a bunch of things. I think sometimes there's assumed knowledge about a system. So like a lot of people will say Zombie World is a great first PBTA game for people. And I agree it's a great first PBTA game for people to play, but I think it's a terrible first PBTA game for people to run because it'll reference things like plus one forwards. What's plus one forwards? Well, if you haven't played a PBTA game, you have no idea. And I love that game. It's brilliant. It's got so much going for it. But there's a place where the assumed audience knows things that the text isn't actually supporting. Forward signaling is huge, talking about mechanics before they come up. There's a right way and a wrong way to do that. I think the right way is to give a preview. Like I don't I don't have to describe how how like the entirety of combat works to inform the reader that there will be combat and I don't know, it's team based or there's spotlighting of some kind or whatever, right? Like you can you can sort of give a generalized summary without going to the detail and then going to the detail later. Or you can just skip something until it comes up. But I think this idea of like referencing mechanics that you're not going to explain is really confusing or annoying or, or distracting. I think order of information in general is useful. I think thinking about 
do I actually have the foundations to understand the concept you're describing now? Don't I? I don't know. Who's your audience? Are If you're taking the time to describe what is an RPG, then what you're telling me is you assume this will be somebody's first RPG, so you should treat it that way. But if you're going to that and then you're giving new GM support, then there's a break in your assumptions about the game. You think you need this paragraph that you don't. You don't need to tell me what an RPG is if you assume that people have played, I don't know, if it's a fit game, if it's another fit game, if it's, you know, if it's another PBTA game, it's another PBTA game. Like, you need to think about what your actual reader's information is. Who, who is your audience? What do you expect them to know? Are they coming from trad games or from indie games? Some, some people I've talked to think that you should always support all audience and assume this is everybody's first RPG. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if you're selling an IPR, the likelihood that you are somebody's very first game ever to buy and run is just not realistic, right? Like if, if you're in generalized distribution or if you think you can hit it big and um, drive through or whatever, sure, take the time. If you're doing something completely new, if, if you're some like dialect or xeno language or or you're you're thinking about different assumptions then then treat the players totally new but if you, this is like your hack of D&D or whatever i bet you somebody coming to your game has played D&D so like a thing that i find very useful is people have character sheets that are filled in and they they give sort of the preview numbered order list here's step one, here's step two, here's step three with the numbers on the character sheet. I find that useful. Any sort of visualization I think is is beneficial. Give it give it to people who you know to read. They'll find things you can't. I, I know this from personal experience, right? Like you you will fill in the blanks of your own assumptions. You you cannot see them, not because you're a bad designer or you're a bad writer, but because you're at month six and you really need to write a GM chapter and you've been thinking about this game and you've playtested this a hundred times and you're exhausted and you think everybody knows this thing because you learned it like three months ago when you were running it and you haven't thought about it since. So you skip it and that's not your fault and you can't possibly know that. You just need an outside reader to look at your text and read it and say, hey, there's this giant hole here. What do you do when you run this game? What supports will people need? What is what is your style of GMing that compensates for gaps in the text? If you're an improv GM, you don't necessarily need a bunch of generative content, but I do. Uh, and maybe you'll still benefit as an improv GM from having some things to reach for when your bag of tricks runs out or you hit an edge case. You know, NPC names is a constant thing in any game. I think really there, there's a couple universals, but a lot of these are just you need outside readers to look at your text and tell you the things that you've you've internalized already through playtesting or through design. Yeah, I guess in that sense, it's just always good advice to say that, you know, you need a, a line editor or a development editor or, or somebody like that, yeah. Hand it yeah. to your friends. It doesn't have to be a professional, honestly. Like, I mean, they help. Like, editors are wonderful. Pay your editors, love your <laughs> editors, hire more editors. But... But give it to a friend. If you if you play with some people regularly or if you have a friend online who you respect, just be like, hey, can you please look at this and like point out some stuff I'm missing? What what are you missing to run this game? If you were gonna run this tomorrow, what what have I missed? Beta readers are super helpful. Okay, so 
You mentioned that you took a break for six, seven months from RPGs and now you're back. You're back to reading games. You're back to playing games. What are the games that you have on your on your plate right now? What's got your attention that you're excited to, to play? Yeah, so I'm, I'm running some of these for the first time in a while. I'm running Wise Women, which I've run before. It's a very cool game. It's a little PBTA game. You're playing witches in a little sort of fantasy Polish medieval village where you can't let the other people in the village know you're a witch or they'll burn you at stake or run you out of town. But you have to use your powers because they're sort of weird supernatural creatures who, because of some of this modernization, like will be disrespected and will cause problems, storms, failed crops, things like that. So it's got a cool tension there. And it has this really unique mechanic where you you don't have a set list of magic. You go you go looking for for plants and herbs and each plant has three different moves and you can have three plants at any given time. And so you sort of cycle through different moves and different options. So it's a really flexible, really dynamic game that way. So that's really cool. I'm running that soon. I'm running Wild Sea where you're sort of ship crew on a flying ship over a giant forest, ever-growing forest. So it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's super weird. You can be like a cactus person or like a swarm of spiders in a person shape or I don't know. It's a very weird game, but, but sort of cool. It's a trendy yeah. game. And that one definitely is just, I mean, there's some cool mechanics, but the settings really, really my love. I'm going to be writing heart soon by our own Rick and Deckard, which is just you're sort of delving into this horrible sort of conscious living dungeon scape under a giant tower. And you're playing a bunch of weirdos sort of, the deeper you go, also the more you sort of explore your own weirdness and trauma and desires, and it gives it to you, but not sort of the way you necessarily hope or expect. So, yeah, those are sort of those are my current my current list. I may be running Crescent Moon next month or the month after, which is a little fifty game by Emma Costa. Really beautiful. She does all the art for it, as well as the design and writing. And you're you're stuck in a dream, basically in the dream world, and you're trying to trying to get out. Oh, I've played both Heart and Crescent Moon, and I I totally had fun with both of them. And I just noticed there is this kind of weird overlap where in both those games you're going into some kind of psychological space, and and you come out and it's changed you. That's that's interesting. I mean, I think that makes for like really cool thematic play. I, I did a couple campaigns in a row the year before last. I played Die and I played my friend's sort of special setting for Cult that he sort of put together. And they both had that. And I, I think there's, I don't know, you you get some really cool emotional play, but also some really interesting, weird adventure. It's why I tend to not read a lot of literary fiction, but a lot of like literary spec fic. Cause I, I love the like deep character studies, but I... I want some super weird body <laughs> horror <laughs> and strange yeah. settings and dreamscapes and yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm the same. I don't read a lot of literary fiction, but I love a sci-fi novel that is just purple prose wall to wall, right? Like I'll dive into that head first. Yeah, I love that stuff. Sophia Samatar, I'm I'm reading through Stranger in a Launcher right now. I loved I read sort of backwards, but I love the Winged Histories was was beautiful. Simon Jimenez. Yeah, give me give me uh, purple prose for Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Stranger in a Laundria. Like, it is one of those books that as you're reading it, at some point, the prose just 
turns into music and you're then kind of just sailing blissfully on it. Oh man, I would love to talk about this more, but we are on the clock. So I will bring us back to our standard questions and lead us out of this interview. So my first question is hugely infectious enthusiasm where you recommend a game to my listeners, but I feel like you've already recommended like wise women pretty strongly. I think that's the game. So I will, I will go to my second question, which is called tyranny of numbers. So I ask, is there a number or statistic that you'd like to share with my audience? Cause you think it might be interesting or useful to them. When I was an Eddie's judge in 2018, we got over 400 products and in 2019, we got over 500 products. Which I think is is sort of useful to to remember how big the ocean is. Sometimes it's easy to look at a small list of games that get a lot of press and think, you know, there's there's only so much coming out, but there's there's a huge and vibrant indie scene that's constantly coming out with new stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure that number is is even higher right now. Like if you told me that last year the NES got eight hundred or a thousand products and. I'm sure this number is actually out there. I wish I had it at my fingertips, but you know, whatever the number is, I wouldn't blink. No, not at all. It's a big, it's a big, big scene with a lot going on. Okay, the last question is called All Advice is Advice for Myself, where I ask, is there something that you're trying to get better at doing at your table? As a GM, I'm sort of obsessed with sort of tone pacing and spotlighting. I don't prep necessarily that part too much because I'm trying to fit in with where the game is at at the moment. I know I have the resources at hand. I sort of know what the game needs in the moment. And I, I try and I try and fill the match. So if they're coming in guns blazing, I'll I'll try and I'll I'll tend to put somebody who's a little a little more considerate and slow. Not necessarily because the game tells me to, because I don't know, it doesn't give them whiplash, but it sort of controls the it controls the pace. It slows things down again. Or I'll I'll make something super speedy and uncomfortable and pausing if they're in a suspicious mood or whatever the case may be. But I, I try and play to to where the where the pace of the game is at. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow Layla over on Blue Sky at pandatheist.bsky.social and over on Mastodon at pandatheist at dice.cam. Next week might be a little different on the podcast. I don't have an, an interview lined up. Instead, I'm launching a new series about teaching role-playing games. I'll be inviting designers to come on the podcast and teach me how to play their game. And hopefully, the plan is by listening to that, you will not only learn the game, but you'll also learn how to teach the game, making it easier for you to juggle one of the under-discussed facts of being a game master, which is you often have to teach the rules. Uh, so hopefully this will make it easier to learn the game and make it easier for you to get it to your table. I am super, super excited for this series. I've got some really, really cool games lined up to be the examples for this experiment. We're all about experiments here. I hope you like it. I'm really interested in your feedback. So just keep an eye out for this and let me know what you think. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. 
There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.